And so if somebody is losing their bedside manner or they um, have what we would determine a negative or a harsh bedside manner, it's not the lack of empathy. What it is, is chances are they've got um, so much built up everything, stored emotion, old thought, taking on too much from others, breaking their own boundaries, that then their capacity becomes low. And so you're not talking about bad bedside manner, you're talking about what's your capacity. And once the nervous system is running on um, too much stress and too much of other people's and it's managing too many things and the person no longer matters, then to ask them to be in service is going to be um, against their chemical structure. They won't have as, not, as much adaptation energy and they won't have the ability to just be there for somebody and then rebound into their own life. And so often when bedside manner goes down for caregivers or teachers, it's purely because they're out, they're out of capacity. It's been a fucking week, hasn't it? I sincerely hope that you are, that you've at least slept in the last two days. Maybe you are digesting food again or have put your phone down for more than 45 seconds. Perhaps a, a, a shower, a, a bathing moment has happened. Um, just collective exhale, right? I think we are all in need of a bit of a palate cleanser. At least I'll speak for myself. So that's exactly what I have in store for you today. But before we jump in, please allow me to welcome you formally, properly to Bedside Manor. This is a podcast about the human side of helping people. And I'm your host, Juliana. I am a Katona yoga teacher, a student of acupuncture and Chinese medicine, and not to brag, but Donald Trump lost the election and will no longer be president. Now, as I mentioned before, uh, we've had a hell of a week, people. And as I was thinking about what kind of show I wanted to put on for you today in the wake of everything that has just happened, instantly I knew the person we needed to hear from the most at a time like this, now more than ever, is the star of today's show, Her Royal Highness, Ali Bogard. Ali Bogard is a teacher. I know her mostly as a meditation teacher, but she also teaches a bit of yoga and she leads retreats and coaches in various capacities. And as someone who has been lucky enough to take a few of Ali's meditation trainings, what I will say about her her bedside manner, her teaching style, just the, the overall vibe of Ali Bogard, is that she really is the epitome of what I call soft power. Now, the way I define soft power is a power that comes from a deep well, a deep sense of self cultivated presence that ultimately gives rise to and allows for a warmth that is not intrusive, not artificial, not efforted, that then fosters connection, intimacy, vulnerability, that is incredibly honest, incredibly truthful, and incredibly aware of itself. So the atmosphere that she creates is really refined and very potent but it has such soft edges to it it's so gentle and it's really a very accepting place an accepting experience that that she creates for people so what what happens in these in these trainings is that you really get the sense that you are being completely supported completely seen completely led completely guided, but you always have enough space to have your own experience. So like, she is very good at her job. 
and I just thought she would be the perfect person to start this week off with as we sort of shake off the dust of a very stressful time and crawl out from under the shadow of a disgusting, evil tyrant looming over us so that we can start to, you know, metabolize some of what we've all been experiencing, especially in a really acute way in the last few days. And then maybe we can start this week off with just a little bit more lightness and at the very least an appreciation for this moment that we're in right now together. And I think by the end of this episode, you will see why Ali Bogard is the perfect person to show us the way, baby. So we're in good hands today. And I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much for coming to the show. Of course, I'll come grab you afterward. But for now, please welcome and enjoy Ali Bogard. So thanks for having me. So for the last, uh, I'm 39 now, since I was 24, I've been um, a full-time yoga and meditation teacher. And for a lot of those years, I ran a yoga teacher training school called Gayatri Teacher Training throughout Canada and all over the world. Um, But that really began, you know, at a a really early stage of who I was as a teacher. You know, I was running teacher trainings before I was a teacher because my teacher lived with a very high level C-spine injury. So she lived with quadriplegia. And so I would be assisting her teacher trainings um, and, and we'd be, you know, 12 hours a day teaching methodology and alignment and anatomy as a brand new teacher, really young. You know, I, was, I had a degree in international business and my work was more in business development. And, and you know, I always thought I'd be doing microfinance somewhere in, in the world. And, and then, you know, I was really captivated by the practice, but then I fell quickly into where women in my family tend to have the easiest groove is, is in caregiving. And so we'd be doing these 12 hour teacher training days and then, you know, three or four hours tacked onto that of, you know, um, transfers and, and body work and cleaning and, you know, that kind of stuff that goes along with somebody that's paralyzed or um, a quadriplegic. And so I was, you know, getting real trial by fire in terms of how fast I was having to learn how to teach, how to run group, how to, um, kind of dissolve myself inside of what was occurring to, to my own detriment at a young age. And then also, you know, what it meant to really be in that caregiving space. And so um, if I define myself now, you know, I've taught for a very long time. I don't run teacher trainings or I don't teach much public yoga anymore. Um, you know, I, I, I really just slap myself into a teacher and I will still classify it as a yoga teacher, even though I don't teach much asana anymore, but the entire, um, psychology and emotional psychology and spiritual psychology that goes behind the practice of yoga that we don't teach inside of that space between up dog and down dog is still a role, you know? And so um, people are always wanting to know, like, is it more counseling? Is it more coaching? Are you more a healer? Are you more a spiritual? It's just a teacher. And then inside of that, I feel it gives me a lot of um, room to just meet people with the, with the way that I know how to watch for patterns and the way I understand the emotional, mental, and, and spiritual body, and then work from there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of experience in the codependent caretaking, the healthy caretaking, and the teaching side of things. Oh, I've heard of codependency. <laughs> yeah, I know right? what that's like. Can you talk about the word dissolve really jumped out at me when, when you were describing your experiences as it well, was in? Yeah. And, and when I said it at that stage, I'm meaning it in its deficit or its shadow. You know, I think I could be at a stage where I can, um, I can really be with somebody without dissolving or becoming the experience they're in. And so without a lot of understanding of, of boundaries and integrity and what's mine and what's not, and how am I taking on too much or giving too much? I didn't have that kind of language. It was just do what needed to be done. And, you know, that comes a lot from childhood and having two sick parents early on and, and a lot of the structures that came up of just figuring out how to um, stabilize everything that's around me rather than like stabilize myself first. And so I became um, very skilled at knowing 
you know, what a group needed and where the group needed to go and what was going on dominantly in the group in terms of an energetic or a split or, you know, I became very, um, uh, at that time, I would say fluent in figuring out how to be inside of the group. And then I'd go back into my own life and it would have a lot of just confusion and feeling lost and not knowing how I felt and feeling exhausted. And then I'd have weird body symptoms like rashes or styes that my body just wouldn't know how to like go form a life again. And so um, one of the ways I learned how to be so communicative to, to people and to the space was at a very early stage where I would just become the space mm-hmm. and then feel everything and not really know whose anger is that and, and where do I begin and where does somebody else leave off? And then, you know, with age and maturity and boundaries and work and all the kind of stuff that comes with, with good maturation in any field, I can now dissolve into a space with you where we can just like have the same conversation, but I don't lose contact or intimacy or that thread of we're different. This is where I end and that's where you begin. Um, so so I, I went about it the hard way. It's not how everyone goes about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I think maybe in, in this is a, a vast generalization, but I think especially in, in our field, which t- tends to be a little loosey-goosey and, and not not big on, on boundaries at first pass, I think that that happens so often where this, this the allure of being so open-hearted and empathetic becomes like how people define a good teacher, how people define having good bedside manner, how people define, oh, like she's so nice. She must be like so caring or whatever. And like, especially if you have that sort of empathetic streak in you, I think our bodies and our relationships kind of are the first thing to go when we really get sucked into that, that tide. It's true. And the conversation that, you're probably having with people as you contemplate bedside manner is 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 never a conversation of empathy because people that are drawn into the healing arts the teaching arts people that want to nurse or be in palliative care anybody that's drawn into that is steeped in empathy they're steeped in the ability to um, sympathize with and feel into somebody else's experience and they want to care nobody is drawn into the service-based industry if they don't want to and so if somebody is losing their bedside manner or they um, have what we would determine a negative or a harsh bedside manner. It's not the lack of empathy. What it is, is chances are they've got um, so much built up everything, stored emotion, old thought, taking on too much from others, breaking their own boundaries, that then their capacity becomes low. And so you're not talking about bad bedside manner. You're talking about what's your capacity. And once the nervous system is running on um, too much stress and too much of other people's and it's managing too many things and the person no longer matters, then to ask them to be in service is going to be um, against their chemical structure. They won't have as, enough, as much adaptation energy and they won't have the ability to just be there for somebody and then rebound into their own life. And so often when bedside manner goes down for caregivers or teachers, it's purely because they're out, they're out of capacity. Mm. Oh God, I love that. It's like having a little mini burnout every time you every time. kind of like had it with, with someone. And that should be, you know, hopefully people that are listening or that are in that space, they say, okay, the moment I'm rude to somebody or the moment I don't care about someone's experience, you know, that'll happen for me if I'm with a, a student or a client and I find myself not caring. Mm. Like, I just don't care. I can't care. That to me, I've trained to be like a little bell that goes off that reminds me like I'm not tending to something. I've worked too much. I'm losing my self-care. I'm losing my protocol. And so I actually look for those signs where I stop caring, not to say I'm doing the wrong job, not to beat myself up, but that's my bell going off that says like I'm dropping something because the moment it has to go to there, I'm so far past my edge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then it's not like, okay, well, I need to you know, stop working with this person or like get this person out of my life. It's really like, oh, I need to just get, get back closer to myself and, and do my due diligence internally before I keep going. In my experience with friends or partners or students or to your point, patients, if that's the case, like I just need to like blow it up. It is so far past the point of when it was trying to get your attention that it wasn't being taken care of or it wasn't being managed. And so always 
go away from the blowout, the big dramatic cut them out of your life and see like, how long have I been feeling this? And if it's been eight months that I've been working with somebody where we're not having the same language, we're not having the same conversation, then like we can have the conversation that we aren't helping each other. Mm -hmm. This isn't service now. This is just becoming a bad relationship. But if it becomes dramatic or harsh or I got to cut it, I don't trust that space. That's too dramatic. Mm. And then it's going to make everybody feel uncared for when really there are a bunch of signs along the way that just said like, I wasn't taking care of myself. And then, you know, I wasn't able to take care of you. Yeah. What are some of the signs that you you've learned to recognize early on in the timeline? So for me personally, it was always skin, you know, it's um, that my skin is very communicative. Like if I would, um, if I would be working too hard or if I would, you know, be um, losing my self-care protocol, or even if I was intimate with somebody that wasn't like aligned with me, I'd always get a rash. And so my eczema would be so communicative of where I was stepping out of my own integrity. Um, So my body sent personal signals. Some people's would be their digestion. Some people's is heightened anxiety. You know, for me, if I have anxiety now, ever since I um, really gave up caffeine, I know if I have anxiety now, there's usually a piece of my life that I'm avoiding conflict in. Mm. And then I have this anxious feeling like, oh, someone's going to get mad at me or I'm going to be in trouble. And so if I feel that, I know it's not a stimulus. So there's something I'm out of integrity with. So my anxiety now is not telling me what is going to happen in the future that's wrong. It's saying like, I'm not tending to something. And so those would be my, my body signs. But um, to, to what I was telling you, the narrative of when I stop caring, that is a very big deal for me because I, I, I do care a lot. Um, but when I stop, like when I start getting cynical and I start getting judgmental and critical and I don't give a fuck, you know, like I know something is so untended to in me and that I have to lash out at the people that I'm trying to help or the people that are trying to help me. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a big one for me. I just, I just can't care. It's not that I stop caring. I can't care. You're just at capacity. I can't care. And I'll do, it'll, it'll be like that. It'll be very flippant and I'll just write you off. Ugh. I so, I so feel that, you know, and it's, I think a lot of us in this field go through a certain amount of shame when we feel that, that like, oh my God, something's wrong with me. Oh my God, I have tools to get myself back on the map. Why am I not doing them? I thought I've been, you know, I meditate every day. Why am I acting like a monster right now? Or even thinking about acting like a monster. So how do you, how do you gently coax yourself back into that space where where you're taking care of yourself, not just so that you can not lash out at people, but, but so that you can allow yourself to be a human. Yeah. Well, and, and, and Julianne, I think that word is so key, the gently it's, it's like, we're so wired to feel those places that, you know, say I've gotten exhausted. And then you came in with all that dialogue, what's wrong with me? Like, we're so wired to think that the, that the negative or the darkened states mean something's wrong right away that needs to be fixed. And if we can just like pause our labeling and our opinion of it and just say like, what's it trying to communicate? If my exhaustion isn't something that's wrong with me, but it's trying to ask something of me, that's a totally different game of work that we find ourselves in. But we have to learn how to like know that this like tender animal body as resilient and vibrant and powerful as it is has incredible fragility and tenderness and same with the heart and same with the emotional body and same with the system and so if we can just get a little gentler and ask questions that actually coax out information without instantly labeling us as wrong in the wrong profession not on purpose doing bad messed up it's 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 so uninteresting mm-hmm you know, it's like, there's so much more information than where do I suck? And so they, I think the first thing to answer your question is like, just pause the story of what do you think it means and go find out what it's trying to say. And if it's communicating to you, it wants to communicate to you, but it's not going to communicate to you in the way that answers what's wrong with me. So you have to change the question, like how long, where else does this show up and how long is this going up for? And where else do I feel like this? And what are the situations where it triggers this? And so you can start to piece together this, this alphabet, this dictionary of a language that your body, mind, spirit speaks to you through. 
that isn't just through the place of like your biggest worthlessness and your biggest shame. Mm-hmm. And then when we get back to like, okay, what's original intent? My original intent is to like be of service to help and heal and like move ourselves into a new system of communicating to each other, whatever is your intent. Then if you go back to original intent and that is true for everybody you're working with, but you have not been made your own client, patient, student, you're going, none of your work is going to take foot. If you are not your own client, patient, student, none of your work is going to have integrity in the field because you don't believe in it. You don't believe in your medicine. Or you're not taking your own medicine. And Yeah, totally. Yeah. Isn't that interesting that, you know, when, when we kind of deviate from what we would think of as like the perfect caregiver, it was always available, you know, the archetype of just like the dissolved, like, true empath, whatever that, you know, we all know, we all have an image of what that means in our heads. And when we deviate from that, we think we're losing, I'm losing that. I'm no longer that person. I can't be this like, you know, benevolent nurturer anymore because I'm, you know, so flawed and human, but in the process of getting back to ourselves and taking care of our basic needs and rewiring some of that really polarized judgmental dialogue, we learn to take better care of ourselves as flawed people, which is exactly what we're trying to do in the first place. That's what Willio said. No, and what we see happens is, you know, the, the caregiver at first comes in with a lot of stamina, you know, and they want to care for either patient, client, student, dying, aging parent. They come in with a lot of stamina. They come in with a lot of intent. They come in with a lot of capacity. And then if they drop their protocol or it goes on too long or they start to spread themselves too thin, nothing becomes about them. And then you start to see the victim and the martyr start to come in line and then everything becomes about them. Mm. And so it creates this weird like split or this weird paradox where none of their life is about them. So they start to create this internal resentment the victim, why are they doing that to me? The martyr, God, nobody ever sees what I do. And it's just now becomes a very self-absorbed system. And so then that becomes very um, provocative and almost like convincing the victim martyr cycle, especially when they look out and they're like, gosh, I don't do anything for me. Nobody notices what I do. Nobody pays attention to me. Nobody understands me. Me, 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 me. Mm-hmm. And that becomes the only way they get a semblance of self back is making everything about them. But that's not the them they want back, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Talk to me more about that, the them. Yeah. So it'd be that flailing one, that flailing one that's like, why doesn't anyone notice me? Doesn't anybody see that I can't do it? Not, there's not enough I could do for everybody. And I'm even doing it with my tone, you know, like, why, doesn't they, why don't they recognize how hard this is on me? Why, me, me, me. Mm-hmm. And so then if they go get all that stuff, like everybody recognizes who they are and everybody celebrates them and everybody, that's not really what they're looking for. They're looking to matter in their own lives. Mm. And if they mattered and they, they knew what they felt mattered and what they needed mattered and what they wanted mattered, then it wouldn't have gotten to this extreme of a place. And so what they're really asking for is to have the world tell them they matter. Yeah. And, and so they go about doing that when it's out of balance by just trying to like endlessly selflessly give to prove to people they matter. It's just, it's not going to work. It's so unsustainable. And maybe that got you cookies when you were 12 and like a pat on the back, like in elementary school, because you were so agreeable, but it doesn't, that's, that's so maladaptive over the course of time. Exactly. There's a point where it got you what you wanted then, and you're still trying to do it but it's not getting what you need now. Yeah, that's actually a question that's been coming up in my, that I've been using in my meditation practice. I've been, you know, just noticing my thoughts, but taking it to the next level. What do I need right now? What do I need right now? What do I need right now? And sometimes it's so simple. Yes. And add in the question, when you get an answer, because some people will do that and if they don't know their needs or they learned how to suppress or repress their needs for so long, they'll just get a bunch of I don't knows. And then when they start to get the needs, I need water, I need to sleep, I need to call my mom. The next question is from from where inside of me, from who inside of me is that need coming from? Is it coming from my hurt inner child? Is it coming from my victim? I just need him to see me, mm-hmm. you know? Like that next question of from where in me is that coming, is that need? Yeah. From who, from which self is that need? 
And then we're going to start to get really refined. There's times my inner child just needs to be put to bed. Mm-hmm. And there's times my, my woman needs to get to work, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, I guess it's such a beautiful way of illustrating how, how much more interesting that self-dialogue is than just uh, you know, existing in this super judgmental, polarized, negatively charged state where you're just, you're either right or you're wrong or you're good or you're bad. It's like, oh, that's so boring. It's it's so boring. It's the person you never want at a dinner party. Right. Right. Like you don't want to, that's not who you want pillow talk with. That's not who you want to die with. That's not who you want to go on a long walk with. It's the worst, that hypercritical, hyperjudgmental, nothing's ever good enough. And right or wrong is the only protocol. It's so boring. Yeah. I know it from my own mind. It's so uninteresting. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Yeah. And we all know, we've all been that person and we all know that what it feels like to be around that person. Yeah. But it's so, it's such a practice to, to get out of that space. It's deep. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what drew you to this realm of, of work? Was it your meditation practice? I would say, um, I would say, I don't know, you know, like who knows what draws us to those places, but I would say, no, it's probably, it's probably my own pain. You know, it's the meditation creates the, the okayness with what is, it creates the space to actually be with what's there, but it's the place of, of, of not wanting to keep harming myself, you know, not wanting to keep upper limiting my life or who I think I can be not wanting to keep drama in my relationships. And I think, you know, we get so accustomed to try to avoid pain until we see the extraordinary amount of um, all of our life that can be built out of that pain and suffering. And so for me, it's an accountability and responsibility to say, I want to be complicit in my life. I want to create it. I want to author it. I want to play in it. I don't want to be a victim to the friends and people that are closest to me and it's it's a it for me it was a real defining of like what kind of woman do I want to be and so the meditation creates I think the space for that voice to be heard but it's a lot more active of work than meditation it's 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 the act of digging out the roots and tending to the weeds you know and just by the nodding of your head you can see that when you're engaged in personal work it's work and, yeah. and meditation isn't, it's, it's a, be, a learning to be with what arises. Yeah. It's like, I always think of it as what needs, what shit needs to happen. Or, you know, when you clean your closet and you take out every single thing and then it's your apartment is a mess, but you're like, wow, okay. Yeah. Now at least I know what I need to clean up here and I can take stuff to goodwill and do this and clean this and give that to that person and keep this for myself. But with, without that, it's like, closing your eyes and hoping that you got all the nooks and crannies. Well, and, and because you're a teacher, you know how to so perfectly speak in metaphors, you know, that's really what we do as teachers. And so you can take that metaphor of cleaning out your apartment and closets and you can roll that through everything we're talking about that there's a point where, you know, we decide like, okay, I can't keep living in more, you know, the body can't, energy isn't created or destroyed. It has to change forms. I can't keep taking data in. I can't keep putting heartbreak in. I can't keep putting resentment in. I'm going to have to like lay it all out and see what no longer needs to live here. And in the closets of what goes to goodwill, you know, you pull out the clothes and you're like, what was I even doing when I bought this? Like, what was I trying to prove? Which person, which self was I when I wore this dress? Exactly. What, who was I dating when I loved this hat or That's usually the truth. Who was I trying to become rather than like, you know, and and then, and so we do that with our personal work. It's like, oh, there's the place I won't forgive myself. There's the place I feel worthless. Let me take that out and see like, is this, are these still clothes I want to wear? What purpose does this serve? Because the, 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 the big shadows of our doubt and our not safe in life and abandoned and rejected and betrayed and our worthlessness, those will be convincing that they serve every purpose because it's who we are. And so they insert themselves into every storyline. So you need me here, you need me here, you need me here. And then that becomes another reason like we're ultimately exhausted because the system has a really hard time trying to make that not truth a reality. Yeah. It's a lot of baggage. <laughs> it's a lot of weight. Yeah. A lot to carry around. Yeah. What what made you feel like 
Well, let's backtrack a little. Sure. You started meditating very young, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was um, 17 when my mom put me and my sister into a meditation class and Genius. she was just coming out of her own um, journey with cancer. And so when she was in her radiation, she went into the Kriya yoga lineage. And so she was starting to see how, you know, her dance with death and coming back to yoga and meditation really changed her. And so she put us into meditation at the start of college. And um, I didn't, you know, I wasn't that interested. I went more of the Ashtanga yoga lineage. And then by about 21, I was, I was getting interested in what the Buddhists were doing. And then what you, you, who was this teacher that you were working with at age 24? She was, um, I was with her for years before. Her name is Mary Jo Federley. She's up in Vancouver, um, Canada, Vancouver, BC. And she's a remarkable teacher. I think she still has the Trinity School. Um, and I don't, I don't know how much she does publicly, but she, and then there was a whole team of us that ran Trinity and then we became Gayatri and we, um, man, it was, a, it was a lot of years of a lot of group. You know, we were sometimes 60 kind of, subsects of groups a year so it was a lot of energy for a long time mm -hmm. so how did you go from uh, dabbling in meditation kind of because your mom told you at age 17 yeah. to like running these trainings and being so plugged in and and feeling like you had it in you to teach and and, and devote not just your personal commitments to this inner work but your professional career to helping other people do the same thing uh, it's, it's too big of an assumption to think I had it in me to teach, you know, like I had what it took to teach. Yeah. That was, that's too big of an assumption. Now for me, it was always, um, what's the thing that needs to be done, you know? And, and because, um, we were at that stage with the school and Mary Jo and, and there was a lot of things transitioning in a lot of the facilitators lives, the part of me that's a caretaker and also the part of me that can be really codependent would just do whatever, need would fill whatever hole needed to be filled and so quite quickly everybody fell off and by 26 and 27 I took over the company and then I was training my assistants for the next couple of years and it was never out of you know wanting to teach it was never out of thinking I was a good teacher it was out of like here's what needs to be done we built a community and here's how we do it and by about 30 I got really burnt out and luckily I had two very good friends and and um, assistants that became co-teachers that wanted the school and they really wanted to build their own things with it. And um, so the, the good thing about me is I'm not precious with anything that I build, you know, whether it's my content or my programs, my courses, I, I'm not precious about it. I know like I can always create content. So I'm so happy to just give it away. And then in it, it lets it, I, I'm more down to see what something wants to be rather than what I think it needs to become. And so you know, that there'd been like tens of thousands of hours taught in those years. So when I um, was leaving the teacher training school and I was moving to New York, I got more interested in um, scaling back group and working talk-based one-on-one with people to really see, not from a therapeutic or a coaching approach, but more from like just a, the, that, that um, school of thought behind yoga in a talk-based way, what we can practice and what we can do. And so um, then my work really became that and created some online programs through it. And now I'll run these um, week-long programs I just called, I call a live-in. I don't call them teacher trainings. They're not for teachers and people come and live together for a week. And we really just get superhuman together. You know, we eat together and we dance and we process and we practice and we emote and we laugh and we cry and in the most human of elements we see what good can really come alive in the person again i love that i'm so wanting to do that i know yeah, so many of love your, it. your live-in alums and they, they oh good they just you'll say, love that one yeah it sounds so i wish we could all do something like that yeah and i wish we could all give ourselves the permission to do things without you know going back to my earlier career to do things without the certainty of knowing what we're doing or the confidence to do it. Yeah. You know, what I always had confidence in is that if it's showing up, something in me will figure out how to meet it. I always had that confidence in me. And that if I don't know how to do it, something intelligent in me will, if it's for something I really believe in, if it's for service or for love or for healing. And so I never had to have all the answers and I never had to have that much confidence in like 
uh, I know what I'm doing. I'd be the first one to say, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'll figure it out. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I just had, I don't know why, maybe it was good parent. I just always let myself like figure it out. And I think so many of us only start when we feel like we're ready or perfect. And my life has never worked that way. God, I love that. And what a beautiful antidote to that part of you that also wants to be available and perfect and, uh, you know, plugged in in all the right ways. It's like, what a nice like lollipop to give that, that codependent like inner child. So so true. Like, babe, I got this. Sit down. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually really smart and kind and <laughs> you can just- And sometimes it's not that. Sometimes it's like, let's figure it out. Yeah. yeah. You know, I always, I always had that. I, I was um, very big in extreme sports as, as in my twenties. And I'd always like watch somebody do something and I would do it in, in, it's in yoga too. It's in these caregiving places too, where it's like, if that brain can figure it out, this brain can figure it out. It's the same cellular structure. So something can figure it out. And I think that's really true with healing. If it's possible, it's possible. Yeah. Whether or not we believe it's possible is like a whole other story. We, we believe the most janky things, you know, like (laughs) I'm so uninterested in what we believe. Like, that's so funny. You know? Yeah. We're pretty gullible. I think to our worst mind. Yeah. <laughs> you know, more gullible to our worst mind. I am at least. Yeah, I see you nodding. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, man. I'm noticing, a, maybe I'm projecting my own narrative onto people, but I do notice this trend of people who have experienced like a deep uh, like medical crisis or an emotional pain or something. And then they were in the hands of a caregiver who made them feel very safe. They felt very cared for. And then it like set, it planted that seed of like, oh, I love feeling this way. This is so inspiring. I want to recreate this for other people. Do you feel like there was an element of that in your own story where like the student became a teacher by virtue of like just being a, a student? Well, I think what we see there, especially in caregiving or bedside manner is, is a lot of people get the parenting for the first time that they never received. They get that guardianship and that care and that compassion that they never received. And so it fills this void inside that then no longer feels like something's wrong with me. It just feels like it was circumstantial. And mm-hmm. I think our, our in a healthy mind and a healthy cultural ecosystem, we're inclined to take care of the whole. You know, we know that the whole benefits the individual and so when we are given really human healing elements, we are more inclined to then go help and heal. And so I think it just becomes a perfect system of reciprocity and symbiosis that then let me give what I got and let me get what I give. Mm-hmm. And so I think something really beautiful happens in those healthy bedside manner places or you know, when you co-regulate with somebody and you can just like take some time to you know, check in and be human and be in a healthy social structure, it just creates more, more capacity, more desire to give. And I think it, it goes twofold. I think it heals something inside of somebody that didn't get tended to and then brings something really human alive that says, if I've been tended to, I need to tend to. Mm. Yeah. That makes me think of what, what we initially started talking about, the, 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 the sheer dilemma of capacity. And, you know, if you, if you clear, clear up some space and capacity in, in your own operating system, then inherently, like, you know, we're a productive species. We want to keep going. We want to keep each other going. I think, you know, we live in a really individualistic society, but I think deep down, all of us have the capacity, a lot more capacity. We would have a lot more capacity to be caregivers and caretakers of each other and of the earth itself. If, you know, we were get afforded that opportunity more, more readily. I, I think that's so true, you know, and, and there's something in when somebody is feeling really burnt out, really lost, really confused, nobody's here for me. We know that the self, the identity that's caregiving needs a little bit of space. So a new self can come forward. That's going to have more direction, more vision, different creativity. Like we're just, we're just like these snakes shedding our skin of the multiplicity of selves that are lived inside of a life. And so if, you know, somebody that went into a healing based profession is now just like uninterested, sick, 
exhausted, then whatever space they can carve out for themselves, any space they can carve out to see who wants to come through me next. Mm. You know, not as like a split schizophrenic thing, but just like what, what part of me is not being expressed here that I need to create a little space so that my artist can come out or my, you know, selfish one can come out or my inner child can come out. We don't know. Yeah. But it takes space. A lot of, and quiet and time and patience. Yeah. Yeah. So you shed kind of a a big skin around age 30 when you transition out of that, that role where you're caretaking for so many people all at once in a group setting. What, what was it like to, to shift working with people one-on-one? Um, as hard, you know, because, um, I was, I did it because I wanted, you know, when I moved to, you know, I was, I was, I was always in yoga communities. And so when I moved to New York, you're in a very fast nervous system, often a medicated nervous system and system. And so I had to learn that language. And so, um, it became, you know, thrilling to just try to like find the entrance, you know, like what's the thing, what's the wording? How do I not speak to people that are in, you know, this common language of yoga, but from somebody in finance or fashion. And and so for me, I, I just always need to be inside of something that's dynamic or I get a little bored, but, um, you know, then I had to like really know the reason why I didn't want to go into therapy is I don't want to be a revolving door for people's problems. I want to be talking about the big conversation of, you know, awakening and God and enlightenment and who we are. And I know we have to get to that place through our traumas and through our wounds, but I want to go through those places, not for those places, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, it's, and, and, and there's amazing trauma therapists and amazing people in that field that are specifically for that. But, you know, our bend with yoga and meditation is to really know the self inside of the self. And so um, it, it's just, it was a, it's a process of trial and error. And so I have to be very um, spacious with my process and my schedule that I give enough time in the year where I go and do my work. So my life doesn't just get lost inside of everybody else's experience. And it's, it's forever, forever my work. And maybe this is true for a lot of people who choose or the profession is chosen at an earlier stage of identity. You know, it was really my early codependency that chose my profession. And so a lot of the cleanup I have to do is to make sure it comes from a purpose rather than an earlier default. Just because we're good at something, it does not mean that just because we're proficient at something does not mean it's where our life lives. Or that it's a defining characteristic or that it's a strength that will stay a strength our whole lives or anything like that. Exactly. How let's talk. Okay. We have to talk about codependency. (laughs) Who helped you even realize that that was a thing or, or help you put a name to what you had been experiencing? I'll assume for your whole life. Yeah. I would say um, it really came to a head when I was ending an engagement in my mid thirties with an addict and you know, although there's addiction running through my family in its variant forms, more in like the grandparent realm, you know, if anybody's done any step work, you know, you know, to even be raised by a child of an alcoholic and then to be a child of a child of that. Um, I had always a lot of space for, for addiction, but not a lot of understanding of, of it. And so, you know, in moving out of that relationship and getting into my own Al-Anon step work and into then my own cleanup and and therapy around enabling and how deeply confusing that line between caregiving and codependency is where my inability to manage my emotional state would make me try to control my outer state. And then, you know, I'd pick people with seemingly bigger problems than me. And so I'd never have to really look at those things that were causing me a lot of my own addiction and my own pain. And so it came a lot through Al-Anon and step work. It came through, um, you know, I've, I've, uh, in my mid twenties, low twenties, I started a lot of plant medicine work and was working with really strong native teachers and in those aspects. And so I was always interested in like, what's making this system tick and who's driving this car. Um, so it came in a number of different ways, but for me, I couldn't get it in plant medicine work or meditation work, or even some, contemplative work I had to get it and just like the break your heart kind of work and so I've, I've gotten a lot of my work out of that broken heart space 
Oh God. I love a breakup for all of those reasons, but yeah, me too. It it still hurts. <laughs> like mad. It hurts like mad. Yeah. Um presumably you you've gone through many uh maybe trials by fire as far as like learning how to implement boundaries and and take care of yourself and boundary work is such an important part of 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 what we do but also of over you know stopping codependent patterns could you talk a little bit about that and and how you've learned to be more comfortable with that or and and have a good relationship with boundaries yeah well i that was a a, a really defining moment for me in that was um one with uh, a really great therapist I had and two with some great coaches I had at the time where uh, my therapist would say, you know, boundaries only become important when somebody loses their integrity or has lost their integrity. And, and what he would say is, you know, if, if two people were in a monogamous intimate relationship and they had integrity, so your heart is as sacred as my heart and I want the best for you and I want your mind to be clear and I want to take care of you. And, you know, we're integrity, we're in integrity with how we hold each other and how we care for each other and how sacred the heart is. And then when the integrity starts to wane, so I start losing that perspective, then boundaries become important. And so when the integrity wanes and somebody is starting to betray, then I have to say, okay, come home at six and I don't want you hanging out with her and I need to see your Mm -hmm. phone. Mm -hmm. And those boundaries of how to keep myself safe are coming because this lack of integrity, I'm not listening to, you know, is this okay for me? And so for him, you know, boundaries become these hard things we have to construct to go build that inner infrastructure. It's like scaffolding to go build the foundation. And, and that was true with, um, you know, when I got involved more in some coaching work with the Handel group where, you know, as a Canadian and in my family structure, I, we just didn't like conflict, you know, like secrets were a part of it. It was easier to lie than tell the truth. And so learning how to tell the truth and let people leave me if they needed to and, be in healthy conflict to avoid later drama and that stuff I had to learn the hard way. And I had to do it not through meditation. I had to do it through hard conversations that said, would say, here's where I'm manipulating or here's where you've hurt me or hard conversations that I would try to bypass or meditate or pray through that I had to just learn how to tell the truth and get some integrity so that what I said and who I am start to become the same person. Cause that would be the feedback. Like what you see is not what you get. And that would be me just trying to like, hide around the places where I didn't want to confront or have conflict or tell somebody I was hurt, mm-hmm. you know? And so boundaries became secondary or tertiary to just getting some integrity and telling the truth and being okay with conscious conflict and letting people leave me if they needed to leave me and dealing with my own fear. If that was the case, like if I tell the truth and you leave, then that's what's up. Yeah. And so I had to stand in the fire of my own life and say like, okay, let it burn. And if anything's here after the fire, then we'll build off that. And then, and then so boundaries become secondary or tertiary, but then when you set them, you have to remember, we have to remember that they're not for anybody else to keep. And so people will sit here and be like, he broke my boundaries. It wasn't for him to keep. You, you know, purely. And so then people set them and hope other people respect them. no. Like it, it, you set them for you, not so everybody else is then like dancing this little, you know, rattle shaking dance around you to make sure that you're taken care of. That's not their job. It's your job to take care of you. Exactly. Yeah. That's something I, I personally really struggle with when I set a boundary, the discomfort of seeing other people that I care for in a state of agitation or, or discomfort and, and having to deal with giving myself the space to not have to respond to that and tend to that need, but also give them the space to be their own teacher, be their own healer, be their own caretaker. I can't imagine. I'm saying, I can't imagine how many people I denied the chance to build their own self-sufficiency or build their own opinion of me or build their own experience because I wanted to like avoid their discomfort. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's cruel. You know, I'm not going to tell you the truth. I'm not going to set a boundary because I don't want you to feel uncomfortable. And then you get no chance to like have friction or edge or traction in your life. It's just not fair. Yeah. And it's so sneaky when that instinct comes from kind of an altruistic place, sort of, 
because we want to help the people around us, but ultimately it's a very insecure place. Yeah, it's true. It's everything is everything, you know, it's both caring and cruel. Everything is everything. It's never one thing. It's like, it comes from a deep place in me that does not want to hurt you. And it's coming from a deep place in me that does not want you to think I'm a jerk. (laughs) So it's, it's both, you know? Yeah. But uh, this is where, when I get kind of in that spiral, I, because I study Chinese medicine, that's where I always look to the pattern of nature and, and just say, okay, well, nature gives us a winter and I don't like winter. And that feels pretty cruel to me, but without winter, we wouldn't have all of the other things that go along with winter and in the body winter is connected to my ears and my kidneys. And I really like having those. So I kind of just accept that that, that is the way it is. Like, yeah. I love flipping the metaphor and you just did it so seamlessly, but I love just saying like, how would nature see this or how would an animal see this? Or how does like, how does this happen in a different flip the metaphor? And, And I can get so much information when I do that, just like you did with winter. How do you, I'm always really curious how, how people, who I consider to have their shit together at some level. How do you like on a very basic level communicate with the people that mean something to you, given that we are constantly communicating with people that most of the time we barely even know, like thousands of people all day long. Yeah. Um, How do I communicate with the people closest? Yeah. Well, for me, like most of my work now mentally is really informed by Byron Katie's work. She's a real Um, love and teacher of mine and so that's changed all of my communication to really in her words and in her work to be inside of the turnaround and so um it's just it's just always watching where my i pronoun turns into the you you should you eh." like where i can just be as spacious and responsible so that the people in my life can be themselves Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, it, and I also really like love that concept of living with death on your shoulder. It's more of a shamanic practice. Like when you just know that all of this is going to end in the big sp- spectrum of time, it's already over. And when that's like kind of the thought that's already behind the thought, what do we say and how do we treat people and how do we hold those closest close? Mm-hmm. Are you like, are you like a big texter? Are you like always kind of up on your, your core groups? goings on or or are you like you know I have a big conversation that's deep and meaningful with my my four people once a week and I check in and the rest I'm off the map like how do you kind of organize your the safe space for that relationship to to flourish and, and give you what it needs I think both and neither it's just like I'm always I'm just paying attention you know there'll be some people that are the closest like my sister and it'll just be like oh feeling you got to check in Mm -hmm. and some people it is a little more daily with the people that were really living life together and it might be you know like a quick check-in or what it's more it's a little more organic you know I think I can default to just like too much text and and avoid that just like pick up the phone and call but even though I have very deep relationships there are a lot of them and so it can be pretty consuming but I'm just I'm a pretty relational person yeah me too but I like to just like feel into people and have them feel into me rather than this obliged daily or weekly talk that's not too good for me yeah it's kind of stifled yeah do you this is kind of a detour but do you think that the internet is ruining the way we communicate. <laughs> That's awesome. I have this obsession, like this really obsessive worry that, especially now, because we can't have like real human contact, that, you know, social media and the internet and texting, all of this is like avatar system yeah. of communication. So like I'm projecting something and I can be as conscious as I possibly can be about what I'm projecting out, but it's mediated through a screen. And not only mm-hmm. is it mediated through a screen it's being met with a screen so it's like projections projecting onto the projection that's deep <laughs> and I'm like shit there's a lot of potholes like you know that there's a lot of stuff that could get misconstrued and I'm really worried that we're spending so much time living like this with no sign of not living like this anytime yeah. soon that I'm like oh god it's weird because the, the, the portal of connection has also become a mirror. Like I'm so sick of zooming with people and seeing myself. Yeah, of course. Of because course. It, it doesn't feel like I'm seeing myself. It's, it feels like I'm seeing the projection of self. And all I want to do is like close my eyes. 
Yeah. And it's, it's, it's who knows we're navigating it as we go. And I don't think it's the internet that's ruining human communication. I think it's just a real, I think the internet is but a um, manifestation of these real blockages of intimacy that we have that would just like even know how to tell each other the truth in the first place. And, you know, for, for, I have a lot of friends all over the world and the internet's the only way like I can even have them in my life. And so I think if anything limits its communication, it's where I try to hide or, you know, lie or not hurt or feel like I'm hurt. Like that's, that's more damaging to me than Zoom. Um, but I'm bored of it too. Like it's, it's very uninteresting because it's so two dimensional and we're not two dimensional. But I, I do know that we are, um, we're adaptive, but we got to be careful of how adaptive we can be because we can quickly normalize things that we should not normalize. And we've done that across the board with a lot of things that should not be normalized. And this could be one of them. I couldn't agree more, especially in this like self-work, inner work space. It's like how often I've done stuff like this where, you know, you have like a catharsis on the internet and you shed all your demons and it, it looks and feels and smells and tastes like owning your shadow and, and being really authentic and telling your narrative. But it's like, what do you actually lose by posting something on the internet? Like pretty much nothing. Like yeah. how, how authentic of a slaying of your demons is that really? And, and I would, you know, there, there's value in that for sure. And I'm glad that we're alleged, you know, kind of becoming more accepting and, and understanding of like the depth of human emotion. But it's like, if that becomes the only way that we process our pain and our struggle, is that, or how effective is that like proxy system? I, yeah, it's very well said. I don't know. It scares me a little bit. I get that. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many things to be afraid of right now. I really get I know, it. Isn't it? <laughs> totally. Yeah. But good conversations and good questions about it all, you know? Yeah, I think maybe that's all we can really do. Yeah, I do too. Um, I would like to, if we can, pull out some, uh, the basic framework of your definition of bedside manner and some of the things that, that we talked about. Yeah. I think it's, it's just, it, it's it, what it would be to me, it'd be like the, on a, on a, not case by case, but over a spectrum of time, how we really have shown up for ourselves and for other people in a way that matters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's going to be times we're just total jerks about it. And we're exhausted, but over time has it trended to the more like I'm, we're in it together. I'm in it with you. And, um, and, and I would say that how we showed up for that, that goodness inside of us and that healing inside of another that kept that at the forefront and, and the bedside manner is just like that, where that's at the forefront of it. Mm. It's I love a, that space for Space yeah, for you. it's a very. I think it's a very human place. It's so human, it really is. Yeah, that's ultimately, I think, the goal of of having not just having these conversations, but making them accessible to others. That people listening can be like, oh yeah, that yoga teacher, that meditation coach, that acupuncturist that has helped me so much and feels like so powerful is also a human. Like the, all yeah. of these things can be true. Totally, at the exact same time. At the exact same time. And <laughs> yeah. I would rather it be that way than, than anything else. Me too. Well, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for asking me, Jillian. It's so nice to chit chat with you. Yeah. I could do it all day. Good. Me too. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. I know. You're wondering. How do I study with Ali Bogard? How do I get more of Ali Bogard? How do I get in touch with Ali Bogard? Babe, I've got you covered. Of course, her website, contact info, all of it is in the show notes. And I did want to mention that Ali is in the middle of teaching an online meditation training through the studio, my home studio in New York. Um, and it, it's just it's just an amazing course. You don't have to have taken the first half of the training. Um, you can just hop on halfway through and she's recording everything. So you can do it in real time or you can save the recordings and and work it into your schedule that way. It's a mix of lecture and practice and 
she structured it so that you can walk away with um, very specific meditative practices to incorporate into your own routine. There's also a lot of great Q&A, and it's really just such a treat. The last time she did a training like this was at the beginning of lockdown, so I've really put her teachings to the test in times of strife, I will say. I mean, April 2020, I was off my fucking rocker, and she kind of just rocked me back to center. So uh, it's just it's just such a treat to do these trainings, and I hope I hope to see you there this weekend. Um, that's all from me. Oh no, nightstand recommendation. Allie has a great nightstand recommendation. It's to check out the work by Byron Katie, and of course I'll, I'll link that as well. Okay, now we're good to go. Babe, I hope this week is just better for everyone in general. I I feel like it could be. And I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you for coming to the show. It's been a pleasure from start to finish. And as always, my darling, let me know if you need anything. Love you. Bye.